Well, uh, this morning I'm preaching through Psalm number 10. Many of us love the book of Psalms. I'm sure it's a book that you, you turn to often when you're having your quiet time and you're just needing a pick-me-up or, or something to help you in your praise of the Lord. The Psalms is a fantastic book. It's actually the, the largest book in the Bible and probably the best known section of the Bible. I mean, just think of Psalm 23, others like that. Even people that don't go to church are familiar with parts of the Psalms. Um, and like so much good poetry, the Psalms help us to express what we're feeling when sometimes we can't express it that well ourselves. And the Psalms are there for us when we're feeling happy. They, they can focus our, our praise and, and our thanks on the Lord. But the Psalms are also there for us when there's trouble in our lives and when things are going badly. And uh, today we're going to look at Psalm 10. It, it's really a personal lament. It's a person pouring out their heart to the Lord. And, and it's a great journey that we'll go on. Uh, when it comes to the book of Psalms, there are actually five books of Psalms. Uh, you might not know it, but if you have a particularly good Bible, in other words, a Bible with lots of footnotes and that kind of thing, uh, you will see little headings around these, uh, these breakups. So why are there five books of Psalms? Well, some people have said, you know, you could only fit so much onto a scroll, uh, therefore you need five scrolls. But I think a better idea is that the books of Psalms were compiled over 800 years or more, and different people compiled different song collections, just like we do today. We have the Tim Hughes collection, the Matt Redman collection, the huge Hillsong collection, the little Beethoven section. You know, so there are all these different worship songs that people put together, and that's why there are five books, but it's really just one. But you can see stylistic differences in the different books as, as they're broken down here. Now, when it comes to who wrote the Psalms, we know David wrote the majority. He wrote 73 of the Psalms. Um, there was a guy, Asaph, he was quite busy, he wrote 12. Then there was the Korah family, uh, they were good at songwriting, uh, they wrote 12 of them between them. Solomon tuned out a couple, Moses won, and then there were the few um, one-hit wonders, Ethan, Herman, and, and a few others. And of course, there even some psalms outside the book of Psalms. Uh, and, and we don't need to go into those today. So as I said, the book of Psalms was compiled over at least 800 years. Moses wrote some of them, and then some of them uh, are set in the, the exilic period. In other words, Boney M's great hit, we sat down by the, Babel, uh, the rivers of Babylon. We sat down and we couldn't sing because they felt so terrible. That's not Boney M that couldn't sing. I mean, that's another... They did very well. So psalms are, are broken into very, in various different ways. There are psalms of praise. There are psalms of confession, like David's prayer after the Lord showed him his sin. There were psalms for national holidays. There were psalms for the king's life and for his coronation. 
for the king's marriage and the like. Some psalms are wisdom literature. If you read them, you'll grow wise. Other psalms uh, are there to teach us history, and they recount all that God has done for Israel. Some psalms are prophetic, believe it or not, like Psalm 22 that described Jesus' experience on the cross. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's actually the most quoted part of the Old Testament in the New. So there are many different kinds of psalms. Some psalms were used at home, hence the guy saying, uh, I sit on my bed late at night and I cry out to you, Lord. There are psalms like that. Other psalms were used in the temple. People didn't own Bibles back in the day, so if you wanted to go and worship, you'd go to the temple, you'd have a chat to the priest, you'd tell him what's going on in, in your life, and he'd say, let me pick out a psalm for you. And then uh, you would sit there and he would uh, sing or, or whatever, bring out the psalm for you, and that would help you in, in your relationship with the Lord. So, uh, yeah, they're all kinds of psalms. And uh, sometimes, because it is a worship booklet, they're, they're sort of uh, tips and, and tricks and reminders for people in the worship team. Uh, there's musical comments above the Psalms, and we wonder, how did these things get into the Bible? Well, they probably weren't written by David and the like, but as these scrolls were passed down and used, people would jot down notes, sing loudly at this point, quiet here, we'll just have the, the harps at this point, bring in the lyre here. And, and so these notes and musical annotation were written in the scrolls, and then later when they were copied, people included uh, those, those musical notations. So the psalm we're doing today is, is Psalm 10. Um, I'm very, uh, very excited about the psalm because I sat down with my Bible to pick which psalm I was going to uh, preach on this morning, and I thought maybe I'd have to read through all 150 till I found the one that, you know, resonated. But I got as far as number 10 and uh, you know, John had already done Psalm 1, so I only had to actually read 8 before I got here. But very excited about this one. So here we go. Are you ready? This is Psalm 10, and it's not pretty stuff. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Have you ever felt abandoned by God? If so, you're not the first one to feel that way. That's what this author is writing about here. Why, O oh Lord, are you, you standing far off? Why do you hide yourself? In other words, Lord, I'm going through stuff right now, and you don't seem to be here with me. You, you're hidden from me. I'm looking for you, Lord. Lord. Here are signs of your involvement in my life. You, you, it's like you're, you're gone. Where are you, Lord? The Message Bible puts it this way. God, are you avoiding me? Where are you when I need you? I'm sure all of us have felt like this at times. Sometimes it's because of the pain we see in other people's lives, which is hopefully more often because there are more other people than there are of us. So we, we see what's going on in other people's lives, and we think, gee, Lord, how could this happen? 
And then there are also those times when terrible things happen in our lives and, and we're like Martha after her brother Lazarus died and we said, Jesus, if you had been here, this would not have happened. It can feel as though God has gone into hiding. I love how the Bible isn't neat, sanitized, domesticated. It's real, it's rugged, it's gritty. It's not polished and smoothed over the tricky parts, the raw emotions of people. It's all there in black and white for us to experience and to feel. And this idea of God hiding himself from me is not, to un is not unique to Psalm 10. In Psalm 13, the guy writes, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 44, why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Psalm 88, Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? Psalm 89, Lord, how long will you hide what Job says in chapter 13, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Psalm 22 doesn't use the word hiding, but the same idea is there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. I'm sure you've all felt that way at times. Lord, where are you? Why do you stand far off? And what I want to ask this morning is, is this just a feeling we have? Or is this reality? Are there times when God disappears? Or, or is it just that we feel that He's not there, but He really is? It's a complicated question, but I think there are times when God does withdraw from people. When Jesus said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because God had forsaken him. God put on Jesus the sins of the world and then abandoned him. He became a curse. In the Old Testament, David feared that God's presence would be taken away from him, which is why he prayed, Lord, take not thy presence from me. Even the New Testament warns us as Christians not to be worldly and so make ourselves an enemy of God. I think there are times when because of sin in our lives, God does withdraw His grace and favor and presence. But I think very often it's, it's really just a feeling. It can be an incredibly strong feeling. Feelings are not very spiritual. Feelings are part of our body. They're, they're chemical reactions in our blood and brain. That's what feelings are. They're not a reliable indicator of where God is and what God is doing. I 
I think often we put too much emphasis on our feelings, both, both good feelings and bad feelings. As Christians, we can be very quick to confuse how I'm feeling with spiritual discernment. But because I'm feeling nice doesn't mean God is at work in my life. And because I'm feeling terrible doesn't mean that God is not at work or present in my life. Next, the psalmist moves on to describing the world around him. And he describes how there are people that are very evil, and yet they care nothing for God. Read with me. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. He is haughty and your laws are far from him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. Our news headlines are full of stories about people that fit this description, who do evil and who get away with it and who appear to be prosperous. Let's take a closer look at verse 2. The psalm describes people who hunt down the weak. And we heard examples this morning from Lavender Hill where the weak suffer because it's the fittest survive, and they're people with schemes, we're told, people with, with evil schemes. The psalm talks about the arrogance and the pride of unbelievers. Verse 2 talks about in his arrogance, the wicked hunt down the weak. Talks about people boasting about the desires of their heart. In his pride, they act. These are people that revile the Lord. This means to insult God and to say all sorts of terrible things about God. I'm not sure if you heard what the president of the Philippines had to say about God last week. It wasn't pretty. Sometimes we wrestle with the question of, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? We, we often wrestle with that, and there are a lot of books written on that subject. Well, here's another good question for you. Why do good things happen to bad people? That's also a good question. Why do good things happen to bad people? In verse 5, we're told that these, these evildoers, these wicked people, verse 5, his ways are always prosperous. 
It's a description of wicked people living in rebellion against God. They're not just prosperous. They're always prosperous. The verses go on to describe these people's amazing self-confidence. Imagine having this kind of belief. Nothing will shake me. I will always be happy and never have trouble. There are people out there that are very, very confident, in case you hadn't noticed. Very confident that what they're doing is right. Very confident that everything's going to go well for them. Why do good things happen to bad people? Psalm 73 is a psalm that I believe Brad preached on. It's a great psalm that wrestles with the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. And therefore, they become proud. They become violent. Out of their hearts come iniquity. The evil conceit of their minds knows no limit. And they say, what does God know? Back to Psalm 10. These people's mouths are are full of curses. Modern scientific people don't believe that the words other people speak can do evil. But the people of the Old Testament certainly believed that curses had power. And I believe that to a degree there is a spiritual impact with the words we speak. And so these evildoers are feared because they cursed people. In addition to to lying and being deceitful and, and threatening others. James writes about the tongue. Do I need to change mics here? It's okay? Okay, I'm getting mixed signals, as is the amp. What James has to say about the tongue, he talks about the tongue is the hardest part of a person to to, to perfect our speech. And he talks about how, how what you say can affect the whole course of your own life. And that there's a satanic power in the tongue. It's set on fire by hell itself, a restless evil, a deadly poison. The next few verses, verses 8 to 11, describe some of the gangsterism and criminality that happens in South Africa every single day. It describes aptly what a farm murder might look like. It describes aptly how Christians are persecuted in the Middle East and in countries like Nigeria. What are these people up to? They lie in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. And he says to himself, 
God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. And there are people that think they can do whatever they want. And that they'll get away with it. And that God doesn't even see. The Bible is very honest about the reality of evil. We are not Christian scientists. Evil is not an illusion. It is very, very real. And there are real victims in this world today. And suffering is very real. And when it happens to you, you will ask the question, Where are you, Lord? What's going on in my life? Why aren't you stopping this mess? The idea that human beings are intrinsically good is a terrible idea. It just doesn't ring true to how life works and to the thousands of years of history that have gone before. David got it right when he said, Surely in sin my mother conceived me. I was sinful from birth, says David. This is what the New Testament has to say about us as human beings. There is no one righteous, not even one, so that rules you out. There's no one who understands, who seeks God. All have turned away, together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Verse 14, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, this is the Bible's assessment of humanity and human nature. And this is why we live in a world where there is so much suffering and pain. It's because we are fallen creatures. Fallen creatures. Now the psalm changes gear. And there's obviously a, a rise of faith in the psalmist's heart. Verse 12, he prays this. Arise, Lord! Lift up your hand, O God! Don't forget the helpless. Come on, God. Take action. We need you. It's the same, actually, as a little line sneaked into the Lord's Prayer, which is often prayed as a very respectful, please, Lord, may your kingdom come on earth. But actually, that statement, your kingdom come, is, is a declaration. It's like this, arise, Lord. We're saying, let your kingdom come. Or is actually there shouldn't be a let. Yeah, I fell into my own trap there. It's not let your kingdom come. It's kingdom come is how it's phrased in the Lord's Prayer. The psalmist is crying out to God to, to take action. And then in verse 13, he steps back. And he's looking at the evil in the world. And he's thinking to himself, why would people even do that? Don't they know who God is? 
Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, O oh God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it and you take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. This verse affirms that there are real victims in this world. And the question is often asked, why doesn't God do more to stop evil and suffering in the world today? Why doesn't God do more? And that's at the heart of the psalmist's question here. Come on, God! One view is to say, to answer this question, say, well, there is no God. That's why God, in inverted commas, does nothing to stop evil. It's all just a fantasy. Another view is to say, well, God doesn't know what's going on. This psalm says God sees and knows and considers it. Another view is to say that God is unable to stop evil in the world today. There's another way of looking at things. And that is the Christian view, I believe, that says God does know what's going on. He does care. He is able to stop it, but He has a greater plan and purpose for us. God could have created human beings without a free will. He could have programmed us to only ever do exactly what He wanted us to do. He could have made us machines. But then He wouldn't have made us in His image, would He have? In order for God to have created us in His image and likeness, there needed to be at least two things within us, built into us. The first is that we needed to be moral beings, able to discern between good and evil, and to, to be able to value things. Without that, we would have just been machines. So God made us moral beings. And secondly, in order to be made in God's image, we had to be given a free will, the ability to make genuine choices. And that is what God has done. And that's why evil people are able to do what they do. Because God has given them a free will. And if they use it to, for evil, He does not stop them. Just as God doesn't stop you and I when we want to do the wrong thing. There's only one way for God to bring an end to evil in this world. And that's to bring an end to every one of us. And we wouldn't want that, would we? Because all of us have gone astray. All of us do what is wrong and ungodly. God has thought once or twice about destroying all of humanity. He did it at the time of the great flood and saved Noah and his family. And then again, after God's people came out of Egypt, they'd been set free from slavery. They were so ungrateful to God, so full of complaints about their lives, 
that God also said, I've had it with this people. Moses, I'm about to wipe them all out. And Moses pleaded and said, Lord, um, that's probably a good idea, um, but what are people going to think of you if you do that? And God relented. Actually, I'm misrepresenting Moses. He actually said, Lord, just take me rather. Partly because he'd also had enough. (laughs) But when Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't say, okay, well, you've learned your lesson now. Okay, reset, reboot. We're all back in perfection in the Garden of Eden. God didn't do that at all. They had free will. They sinned. They were cast out of God's perfect world, which was a delight, Eden. And we've lived in this horrible, broken, sinful world ever since. Verse 14. God, you do see trouble and grief. You consider it to take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. What does that mean? It means when you're suffering, what is your posture, your attitude to God? Do you throw yourself on the mercy of God? That's how we should respond when when we're suffering evil. Reminds me of the widow who's described in 1 Timothy 5. She's left all alone. And she puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray. That's what it looks like when a person's had a raw deal in life and they put their hope in God. And as we bring this to an end, Psalm 15 says this, Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness, that he would not be found out. This is a prayer for decisive action. Some of us may think, ooh, how can we pray and ask God to break somebody's arm? How terrible to even think that. But when someone you love has been shot or wounded or, or, or profoundly harmed, you'll find that that, and they continue to do that, you'll find that that prayer comes very naturally to you. This is not the prayer of a theologian from an ivory tower. This is a prayer of a person who's, who's suffering greatly. Lord, break the arm of the wicked. As Christians, we can get very squeamish about God punishing people. But we shouldn't be, because God's done it a lot, and He's going to do it a lot more. Break the arm of the wicked, so that they will stop what they're doing. What are we to believe about injustice? A very often quoted verse of the Bible Do not take revenge, my friends. Why not? Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And there's no one in this world that has suffered injustice that will not be 
be rewarded by the Lord and, and that made up to you. And there is no one who has committed evil in this world who has not repented of it and been sorry for it that will not be held account for those sins by God. And so in South Africa, as we read the news headlines about this one who did this and that one got away with this and that one's been avoiding going to court for X years, we don't have to get all worked up about it. We can just say, it doesn't concern me if injustice happens in this world, because as Christians, we know there will be a balancing of the scales, and one day every sin will be accounted for, and every injustice will be made right by God. That is the hope we as Christians have. Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever, forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. The meek will inherit the land, the earth. There will come a time where there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And only the godly and the restored and the repentant and the brokenhearted will be there. And every tear will be wiped away and everything made right. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. No one is going to be outwitting God in the long run. People get away with a lot now, but it's only because of the grace of God giving them time to repent, giving them time to come to their senses. God considers what's happening and takes it to heart. Let's pray. Lord, this is quite a psalm when we digest it. So accurate and authentic in its description of what people do in this world the harm they cause others, the violence that is committed. We thank you, Lord, that you see what happens and that you, you've promised us a better future and that you reign over all. We want to say with the psalmist today, Arise, Lord! Come and break the arm of, of evildoers. Fight evil in our world, Lord. May your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to be conscious of the suffering of others. And when we ourselves experience suffering, to entrust ourselves to you, Lord. Thank you that you are a just God, that you are an all-powerful God. Thank you for the privilege of being made in your image and likeness. Thank you that we can cast ourselves upon you and your goodness, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you. I think we'll close with.